0: Welcome to World of Gas, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of Safegraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit Safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Christopher Alberg. He is the founder and CEO of Recorded Future, which is a cybersecurity intelligence firm that sold to Insight Partners for $780 million in 2019. He's also the co-founder of Spotfire, which sold for $200 million in 2007. Christopher, welcome to World of Dats. It's great
1: to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. This is great. All right. Let's dive in because you're a cybersecurity nerd. Like, What cyber threats do you think are overblown?
1: You know, it's very interesting. You hear these government officials. You know, they come out and said we saw fifty million attacks on our country. Sort of these <laughs> sort of thing. And dude, it's like a bunch of scanners that that scanned every IP address in the world. And yeah, so I think that's probably the best example of where
0: even fairly sophisticated people makes sort of something out of completely nothing. God, so they just use these raw numbers or something like yeah. that. Okay. Interesting. And what threats do you think are not being taken seriously enough? So
1: I think there's one that's sort of actually a great example that's going on right now where the Russian ransomware gang Conti more or less has the country of Costa Rica in, you know, for sure in ransom, but they also got it locked up where they sort of got into the country's systems and and just got it locked up. And if you think about sort of asymmetric threats where Basically, two dudes, and we sort of know who they are. these two dudes in in Russia have been able to put a lock on the Costa Rican government. I think just as, that's the start of something that's going to be very
0: uncomfortable and how does a government like Costa Rica respond? I mean, this is they may have the resources of you know United States or u k or China or something like what how do they respond to something like this? Do they just pay the ransom or is there some sort of way they can try to get these guys?
1: No, that's the interesting part. No, Costa Rica, you know, as we know, it's never had an army. It's it's a very different country in many ways. So, so now, actually, guttily enough, I don't know what the right word is, but you know, they've actually not paid the ransom, and they've been asked for ten million. I think the guys doubled it to twenty million, and they've held out. Now, they should have had great backups. They should have been able to sort of restore systems elsewise. But you know, to your point, they don't have the resources, and so they don't have a lot of response. The United States came out and offered. Big equal amount, ten million dollars of ransom on the guys, and I uh, think that we're 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 doing that sort of to help them. But it's a very tricky. It's like a very classic asymmetric threat of big proportions.
0: And so we know, at least we think we know who these two individuals are who are doing this. Is it just now they just can't travel for the rest of their lives and they have to stay in the country of Russia or? And there's some red notice against them or what What happens now?
1: Yeah, no, that that's exactly right. These guys are largely in Russia or ex-CIS states, but have sort of retreated back into Russia. One of these two guys was in Kaliningrad. We had pictures from on the airplane when he flew back to mainland Russia probably thinking that was better. Um, you know, Russian criminals typically stay in Russia and, and there's no extradition and there's zero incentives for the Russian government. Maybe we can come back and talk about that. Zero incentives for the Russian government to hand them over. Now, eventually, this is the counterpoint, eventually all Russian
0: criminals wants to travel to Spain and get some sun. Yeah. So that's how it goes. Got it. But they know that, I presumably, but they guess every once in a while they'll test the system or something. Yeah. I mean, they're probably all listening to this podcast right now. Yeah, so, no, no, yeah. exactly. And there's
1: a few of them are smarter. Um, Mr. Bogachev, we can talk more about Mr. Bogachev later, who's one of the more sort of well-known and closer to the Russian security apparatus. He flies to Sochi instead and has his yacht in Sochi. And, right. and that's a better place than going to Spain because we can't get him in Sochi. Yeah,
0: I mean, Russia is a big place across like 12 time zones or something. Yeah. So there's probably a lot to do without having to leave there. That's right. Now a lot of people on this podcast have talked about the limits of AI and machine learning. How do you see these like capabilities evolving over let's say the next five years? Well, that's a very interesting.
1: You know we take in an ungodly amount of data of various. We started in the world of text and then sort of taken in a lot of what I would think about as machine data, a lot of imagery of various sorts now more more recently and code, software code to be big swaths of different types of disparate data. In many ways, we do things that I would certainly think fits the Turing test and could be as AI-ish as much as anything. But most of it is just simple counts. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, I tend to not be too caught up in, in this and that. My co-founder, I took his AI class in 1991. We worked together <laughs> since 91. We both agree that the deep learning chapter was not in the book of 91, but all the other chapters are fairly same, the same. So I think there's we've seen great advances, but then there's others where maybe we're still in the world of count.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or, But like now that we have more compute power, we can count faster, we can do yeah, some of these yeah. things much better than we could before or more efficiently than we could before.
1: In our world, the thing that is sort of depressing at some level is that there's, I like to say that I can tell you with good prediction whether an IP address or a domain or something like that is going to be used maliciously. Yeah, but on the other hand, low probability events, which we mostly think about terrorism and these sort of things, but it's the same thing. Will SafeGraph be hacked or not? You know, yep. SafeGraph has likely never been hacked, so now prob you know making a prediction about that is very, very, very hard. Yeah, yeah, uh, hard to do
0: a low probability event. But if you're looking at something that happens on a regular basis, then it's easier to make a prediction. Th- that's true in any scenario, right? Yeah, no, it's
1: it's not no big surprises, but there are a lot of people looking for an easy button there and saying. Tell me what's going to happen tomorrow. So,
0: yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned earlier with Costa Rica, like there's this growing use of malware and ransomware, which I guess could happen all the way at a state level. It certainly happens at, to individuals or small businesses and stuff. Is that just going to continually be a problem or do you see like a way out of that over time?
1: So you think about cyber criminals, they're typically very small gangs, you know, like it could be like a guy or two. And, you know, originally these guys would steal credit card numbers and identities, yep. and they always try to figure out, how do I make money? And they sit in a mom's basement in the or and, and just try to think about, how do I make money?
0: And assuming the easiest way possible too, to make money, yeah, right, I mean, yeah, what, you my, know. right, okay.
1: And ransomware sort of put a bunch of things together, Bitcoin, because I can be paid, that yep. be very important. I can extract the money, Decently well, not great, but decently well. And then the sort of distributed nature where the guy, I don't know, Revil, famous ransomware gang, they cook up the actual sort of piece of encryption software. But then they work with a whole bunch of affiliates who are the guys who get into all kinds of computers and systems and companies around the world. And they take a lot of the risk and and they actually carry, get a lot of the economics. So they have this sort of distributed financial model, pretty incredible. But that's not going to be the end. I think for a good while, ransomware is going to be one of the best ways for cyber criminals. We're seeing a little bit of a shift now towards this, you know, the Costa Rica like thing when it's both about encrypting the computers, locking things up, but also stealing documents. I can say, I saw you illicitly emailing with your secretary. or that- uh, So it's a blackmail. So blackmail it's just, uh, like okay. So it's yeah. like a
0: separate thing as well. It's, it's not like dual, um, you're not going to get thing. access yeah. to this data, which is already a little bit of a blackmail. Yeah. It's, I have access to, and I'm going to tell, or you know, I'm going to tell the SEC about you or, or some other type of thing that's out there.
1: Yeah, no, no, those sort of things. And that has already happened. And we're going to see more of that.
0: Okay. Yeah, that does seem like, because everybody has something that they wouldn't want on the front page of the Wall Street Journal or something like that. Of course.
1: Not me, by the way, but everybody else. (laughs) Everybody else, of course. Yes.
0: Yeah. And how do you think, I mean, I know that there's this famous pack of, um, A couple of years ago, of a pipeline in the United States, and then the ransom was paid, but that they were able to get, I think, most or all of it back just by like following the chain. I believe this was on Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Are hackers still using Bitcoin because we can kind of follow a lot of these transactions, or are they moving to some sort of these like more anonymous types of cryptocurrencies?
1: No, they, they are also trying other things. So they like Monero for a while and so on. Bitcoin seems to be the main piece. There are obviously great sort of analytics companies, Chainalysis and these guys who yep. build businesses out of de-anonymizing. It's pretty bizarre, the whole thing that the United States as a government invents tour, invents a lot of these sort of yep. things and like the, all this anonymization technology. That now is sort of used maliciously and then (laughs) other companies come along and invent sort of dna like i don't know it's just bizarre gotta love the internet but they still prefer bitcoin because i think it's just until there's something better for them they will use other sort of things too but you have to remember that in the end game so regal might have made half a billion and a lot of the money goes up the chain of the protectors inside the country inside russia but i doubt when they go to the local sort of fsb boss that he's going to take much bitcoin he wants gold or hard cash yeah and so they got to monetize this stuff and it's not you know it's, that's why you still see money mules and these sort of things showing up here because you know you steal steal a billion dollars it's not easy that's like when if you remember when north korea hacked bangladesh and was trying to get away with a billion you have a billion it doesn't matter if it's cash or bitcoin you still got to make it into cash you can actually use and that's yes. not yeah not yeah yeah if
0: it's just on a ledger somewhere it looks good but it doesn't mean you can go you actually spend that money or anything no, like that. No, no, OK, so there's this whole other side of it. Like once you steal the money, now you have to figure out a way. And I've watched enough cops and robbers shows to know that you can get the money illicitly, but then you have to figure out a way to launder it and all these other things, which are also very, very difficult to do. And,
1: and you know, the best example was with the North Koreans were doing this with Bangladesh and they'd sort of prepared the whole thing with bank accounts that they'd held for a long time, for decades in Sri Lanka and the Philippines, yeah. they had like a whole scheme to it. And again, a guy in the basement of Yekaterinburg, Yook- he may not have that sort of infrastructure. So it's tricky stuff. It's tricky stuff.
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, certainly a state like North Korea just can act in a much more sophisticated way than even some of the best cyber gangs could. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Now, you you have a famous saying. You said, I think the quote is the Internet used to reflect the world in the next 25 years. This is going to flip and the world's going to reflect the Internet. What did you mean by that? So (laughs) good, good question.
1: No, I think, you know, slowly, whether it's 25 years or 30, you know, but, you know, we've seen sort of systems, transactions, everything sort of slowly getting onto the internet. And that's interesting. And, and, you know, we that obviously, even what we do right now, next 25 years, though, I think we're up for something completely different when the core sort of tenants of society, whether it's power, currency, democracy, I like to say identity emerges off the internet and comes on to the world and 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 it's sort of internet first and i got teenagers their identity is sort of shaped from the internet democracy is shaped of the internet power is going to emerge off the internet and some of the conflicts we see now that are around the world what's going on in ukraine it's incredibly internet centric and in the sort of the in that world what is a country anymore what does it mean to be in power it's it's going to be a quite a ride in front of us
0: Okay. So now if you think of these countries, like some state actors have this strategy of allowing cyber criminals to work with maybe minimal interference. Maybe they have to pay some sort of kickback up the system or something like that, but then they'll, they'll maybe like use them in reserves. Like every once in a while, okay, I need this for my country to help me out. How do you see this kind of like hands-off? It's kind of a laissez-faire decentralized approach. Like how do you see that working for these countries over time?
1: Yeah, I know. And, and, and they've done it. You know, so in Russia, the sort of the early uh, hacker forums like Harder Planet was one of the earliest ones The one of the sort of the most, probably the most powerful today. Maza was another early one. masafaka was terribly enough called. But the then now exploit.in that, is, that still exists sort of came up around 2006, 2007. Likewise, in Iran, the first sort of hacker forum. And I'm going to say this, wrong, Aljanya, I can't really say it well in Farsi here, but Aljania also shaped or came up sort of 2006, 2007, and a lot of illicit stuff, real illicit stuff, have happened in these places, and clearly with maybe not just less affair, but with some oversight by government. We wrote one of the most interesting reports we ever wrote at Recorded Future was this thing called Dark Covenant, where we basically took every single fact of the interaction between criminalia and government in Russia from 2001 or something like that and laid it out and all the way up to where the indictment, where the U.S. indicted, again, I mentioned Mr. Bogachev, Mr. Palin, Mr. Dukachev, and then two other, I think, FSB officers and Dukachev is like the interesting guy in the middle of that who originally created this hacker for Amaza was flipped into an FSB agent, I think, or FSB officer, I guess they call him officer, FSB officer, and then eventually was actually arrested in Russia yet again at the end for spying or something on behalf of, of America. He got caught up in something bad there.
0: Oh, oh, so he he was like a double agent or something? Yeah, or? There's,
1: it's complicated there. I, oh, I'm not wow. Say that okay,
0: I want to see this movie. Uh, this yeah, song. no, it it's, very a, interesting. it's a movie okay. for
1: sure. But that report we wrote there We know that was read in lots of places, if you put it this way. And it sort of got uncomfortable. And and the interactions there is that clearly that the Russians have being constantly recruiting from this world, sometimes to sort of low level stuff. We need DDoS attacks that happen here, all the way over to very sophisticated activities. And these guys, again, the Costa Rica dudes, those were involved, at least one of them with the colonial one that you mentioned. And these are guys that the government have oversight of. Absolutely. They may not give them today orders, but yeah. they have oversight and can use them. No question.
0: Okay got it so it's kind of like a if you think of like a mafia it's like okay you've got this kind of like territory you can go rob these places you can go do that you have some sort of kick up that you have to do every week or every month or something like that this has
1: existed in Russia for a long time I don't I'm not going to know the word is it fair or something there is a word for this where some guy in the even before communism you'd have the sort of the the guy who ran the St. Petersburg area he split that into a bunch of areas and yeah and then the money had to flow up to, and very mafia-like. So this is, okay. And there's a good Russian word for it that I'm not going to remember right now, but you know, for sure, been around for a long time.
0: Now, in some ways, if you think of the US, like the US is very open. And in some ways that means we have the biggest attack factor. Mm-hmm. And I would expect that means that we have to be very much on the defensive. Whereas a, a closed society is going to be much harder to attack in some ways, you would think. Is there any way to like change up the dynamic?
1: Yeah, I I was thinking about this as I sort of you mentioned that point. I I think ultimately, still, you know, we have the best IT industry, the best, you know, like I I think we should not shortchange ourselves. You know, like there we have a lot of problems, uh, and we probably are quite vulnerable, and we'll talk more about that. But I th- still think we're much better off than most places. If you think about how when hacktivists started going at Russia here at the beginning of, of Ukraine, because historically Russia has not had much of sort of, except for spying, going at very specific government institutions, the way, because the, the cyber criminals of Russia have been told you cannot, absolutely not touch anything in CIS states or in Russia.
0: Yeah. And so, so these guys were vulnerable. China sort of the same thing. Oh, so because I, they haven't had think... a lot of people trying to hack them. Where so we've had way more Exposure folks and trying training. to attack us in the United <laughs> yeah. States. So we're used to it. So we're just a little bit more hardened, yeah, essentially.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. So first of all, I don't think it's right. The conclusion is not correct that just because you're closed, you're safer. And okay. Maybe if you take it to its extreme of North Korea or something, where basically there are no computers, you know. like yep. Okay. So th- maybe yep. maybe then. But then number two, there is more subtle dynamics here where in the US, we're pretty good about disclosing what's vulnerable. The government has a good process for if the government does hold back on a vulnerability they want to use for hacking, there is a very sort of this vulnerabilities, equities process that is very formal, very well run. In China, this stuff is very shady. I too much to get into here, but there's the chicken lives with the hens in a very bad way in China and this stuff. And I think they actually ultimately make themselves more vulnerable then because it's when the government has to sort of take hold back on things that you're going to go hack other people with, you actually make your own country more vulnerable. So I actually think our approach
0: is bad as it is. It's still the better than all the others. Okay. If you could create like a law or something, regulation that could strengthen cybersecurity or whether to be disclosure or data breach or, What would you do to to make us better?
1: I'll say two things. One is sort of, to your point, disclosure, transparency. Transparency, one of the reasons the whole sort of, the whole ability to go out the internet is there is that of so much being opaque, so much, you know, like it's just so much opaqueness and it's opaqueness that is sort of managed by a workforce that has extremely high turnover. So the average CISO, the guy who runs information security, the average person lasts for 18 months. And his teams goes with them, so it's like if you changed over the guard of the Pentagon every eighteen months, and you know, like the bad guy sits there and wait for five years just for something to open. Yeah. So that's one, and then the other one thing. So I would be lost that creates more openness, more disclosures, those sort of things. Number two, and this is a hundred times harder, but more important. The only way this actually gets solved is that we come into real agreements with China and Russia, and primarily with Russia on cybercrime, where we sort of say that maybe we, you won't extradite the criminals, but if we call out, this is the criminal, you need to put him in behind bars and have him stop. And until that's fixed,
0: we're not fixing this problem. Okay. Interesting. Now, what do you think this, like, when the internet started, it was very American, even though it was quote unquote open, you had ICANN, you had all these other things, which were essentially like very American controlled institutions. And now there's two things happening. One, it's it's controlled much more globally. And then the second is you have all these like, you know, in some ways, country specific internets, maybe regional specific internets that don't have anything. So where do you think that go is going? And how do you think the US can still have core influence over the internet?
1: That's a great point. You know, like it's and it's sad to your point, like for those of us who sort of grew up with a sort of emerging Internet and we we're redwired and we were all excited and it's become, you know, more of the nets, uh, you know, yeah, uh, so, so that's sort of sad. But I think the U.S. used to invest in a lot of this. We sort of stepped, I don't know, took our eyes off the price there or whatever you want to call it. We have underinvested in that while China and others have they've shown up. In every committee, they've doubled down to run the committees, and whether it's telecommunications or the internet, and we screwed up there. I do think, actually, current administration by appointing the best peoples here, so Chris Inglis and Anne Berger and Jen Easterly, and now Nick Fick in the State Department, these yeah. are tremendous people. This is like we're putting the best people forward, and I'm a firm believer that. If we can sort of, and and Ukraine sort of shows this, on the internet, if we can have the West and its friends and its allies come together to actually, with the best of people, not control the internet, but work towards making it an open place, We can make it better, but we just—it takes hard work, and we got to show up. We got to be in these committees, and and again, put the best people forward. And I think we've seen something better here recently with just the quality of the people that we're putting forward. And they're both great, but they're also tough. These guys are no Mickey Mouse's. You know, Inglis and Neuberger and Easterly. These are not like pushovers. So it's that's the other thing. They're the smartest and the toughest. So it's good.
0: Yeah. Where do you fall in this continuum of encryption? You know, we had this scenario where you had this terror event that happened a while ago, and um, the FBI wanted to get into the the iPhone, and Apple was very worried about making it open for various reasons, because then people wouldn't trust it as much. And they ended up getting in anyway through hacking it. But where do you feel like on this encryption debate? Is there a framework that we should be thinking about that uh, from a society? That's a
1: great question. So I used to have a great board member, Teresa Shea. She ran SIGINT NSA, incredibly clever woman, still a very good friend. And, and she would make this point that we sort of got to choose. We can have perfect protection against terrorism, or we can have, quote unquote, perfect information security. And then one, you sort of compromise on encryption and sort of say, look, because of counterterrorism issues, we are going to have backdoors and all this sort of wonderful mm. stuff, or we try to make things secure. And it was interesting hearing her as the sigint saying, look, we got to optimize for information security rather than counterterrorism. Because, you know, the West overreacts, and this is controversial, and some people will be mad at me for saying this, but the West overreacts on CT, on on counterterrorism, versus other threats. I think it's more important that we allow for powerful encryption. Uh, We should not hope for government agencies to... um, be the best spies via loss. And that's essentially what we do with backdoors. We say, look, here's this great encryption technology, but we're going to legislate that certain agencies are going to be able to get into it. I think it's just, it actually makes the government agencies lazy. The good news is have government agencies give them money let them apply. Go at it. Like when the French hacked encore Chat, they figured out how to sort of get around this thing that the criminals were using in Europe. And once they got into it, they had a field day. And that's great. Go do it. But don't try to legislate it. Because I think once you legislate it, other bad guys will take advantage of those back
0: doors in a second. So essentially, it's like, hey, go find your own zero days or whatever it might yeah, be. Yeah. But uh, OK. Or,
1: or maybe the whole thing is going to sh- Like spying tends to sort of have decades of like... Maybe it was all about satellites for a while. Maybe it was all about telco listening to phone calls. Then it's all about hacking. Maybe we're over the next 10 years are going to be where it's all back to good old spying. I don't know. Maybe yeah. it's all about getting to know Putin's butler yet again. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. Know, this, this stuff sort of shifts. And trying to legislate
0: that to maintain a technical advantage via law, yeah, it's just not going to work. So in a kinetic war, there's clear guidelines that have been kind of formed over the years for responses. Like, if you blow up my bridge, I have a list, like already a list already created of proportional responses that I can do back, right? In a cyber war, everything just seems much, much less clear. Like, well, how should we do that? Is like, should we write that up? And would telegraphing what those responses be, would that lead to more provocation or would that be more of a deterrent in the end?
1: Cool question. If you think about one example you immediately go to is you think of nuclear bombs, nuclear warfare, where clearly that was right. very it's
0: clear. Everything is written down. It's very, very yeah. clear.
1: and that works because the number of players was extremely limited. Eight. That's right. Okay. Yep. And, yeah,
0: if you have uh, N of a thousand, it, it becomes very, very difficult. It and probably and, wouldn't and work one N more words.
1: point to it. Not only are we having thousands, maybe tens of thousands, but we only have eight. And if Pakistan would send a, a a missile a nuclear missile on Israel, it's quite likely we'd figure out that it was Pakistan. So yeah. attribution is simple. Whereas yep. in cyber, when even a US president might, you know, one of our agencies comes out and say, or in fact, 17 of our agencies come out and say, this was Russia. And our own president says, look, this might just be a, a guy in a basement in Oregon. Now, what are you going to do? You're going to say, look, if you hack me, I'm going to send nuclear missiles on you. It becomes very, very hard. That said, I think we do need to delineate what our response is going to be to some extent and then maintain a lot of freedom for um,
0: what we can do. There's different levels of hacking. I mean, we've always been spying, right? So yeah. in some ways, like if we're going to go spying each other whether it's like the OPM hack or whatever, like that that just happens. That's par for the course. And we have to harden our targets to make it difficult to spy on. But then there's another thing where you're actually going and you're you're not just getting information, but you're causing some really bad mischief or something. And then there, that seems to me that it does deserve a more of a response. Because of course, like we're all trying to spy on each other, right? I assume. Yeah, yeah.
1: no, no, spying is totally fine by all means. You know, in fact, I would be upset as a US taxpayer if we didn't do the OPM hack on the Chinese every day over the last right. 25 years. Right. Like, I want a, hard, a hardwired pipe from whatever PLA sort of outfit that holds the same. But no, you're 100% right. It's tricky. I do think we need to demark these lines and state them, but we also need to maintain a lot of flexibility for now. And, and then as we become better at attribution... This picture I have it behind me here where we are able to say China hacked the Vatican. But of course, once we did that and we sent out that report, we made a huge deal out of it. And then the morning after, in the morning briefing in the Chinese Department of State, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, they come out and say, we think hacking is very bad. Recruited future is 100% wrong. And da, 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 And, you know, it's the same guy. It's the same wolf warrior who comes at us every time. And, you know, it's just part of the game, but.
0: One of the things that I was surprised by in the Russia-Ukraine conflict was it didn't seem like the cyber things have been as determinant as one would have thought pre-war. One would have thought that maybe the Russian government could have taken down the Ukraine economy, they could have taken down the systems, they could have done these other things. I assume Russia has one of the best cyber offense systems in the world certainly top three. Why was it not as determinant? Yeah,
1: yeah that's a good question. So um, I think a couple of different things. First of all, there may be more uh, going on than most people have sort of realized.
0: That's one. Okay, so they may have been more successful. Yeah, yeah.
1: but at the same time, I've certainly been in briefings with senior people as they come and they basically said, where are the cybers? <laughs> you know, like that that sort of thing. So yeah. don't, don't feel bad. <laughs> you know, we've all been asking that question. Um, three, cyber... If you just use that as a very generic term, is a good vector in the lead up to war. Once you go kinetic and so on, it maybe becomes less effective.
0: But even in kinetic, it's like: Are you able to tap into communications between soldiers? Not only are you able to tap into communications, but can you insert something in the communication so they get the wrong communications yes. coming back? Or so you would think you could cause a ton of stuff. Yeah, no, And this is happening
1: all the time there. So, quote unquote, don't worry. It's happening from both sides. And the, the okay. Ukrainians have actually been, you know, so one of the things I was going to say, Ukraine has been pretty damn good at defense here. They, remember that this started for them arguably in 2014. So they've yeah. had seven, eight years. Of, they've had a long time to figure it Yeah. And then number two which is pretty cool. So we have had a very active posture in Ukraine as a company. We have many, many, many users in Ukraine of our product, and we've had the chance to sort of be super entangled into it. These guys know what they're doing. They're good. Uh, Very impressive. And a bunch of legalities and rules sort of like that hinders Western countries that there are no lawyers in the ways of information sharing and disclosures in Ukraine. People just do what they need to. And people can collaborate in a way that is just not seen elsewhere. And also now the Ukrainians, too, I, I got to follow up on your soldier example communications thing. The Ukrainians have done this beautifully, you know, where they basically said, we're going to make it uncomfortable for Russian soldiers. And they record them, whether they call back to their mom and cries and says, this is terrible, or they call their girlfriend and boost about doing terrible stuff. The Ukrainians record it and stick it on the Internet. And then not only that, they put those recordings on download sites of pirated music back in Russia so that Russian boys get to hear the same. Yeah. So so Ukrainians have been pretty good on running an information warfare back. So there is more stuff going on than people realize. I think actually Ukraine is a good proxy for what we're going to see in a future
0: conflict. But don't forget, the Ukrainians have been pretty good at defense here. It does seem like there's a lot of things to from maybe even at a cyber, but you know, if you think of a lot of like these guided missiles, they're very GPS based. You would think that the Russians could potentially jam the GPS pretty easily or cause some confusion in the GPS. From what I understand, that doesn't seem like it's happening on the ground. That doesn't take much technical ability to go do that. I could go create a GPS jammer right away. Why are some of these things not happening? Is just because there's just like all these second order and third order effects that the Russians are worried they would blow back on them.
1: Yeah, I think so. You know, now they do have their, what is called glasnost, their their separate system. So I think you're right. There is like this, you know, the very basic question, why didn't they just blow up the Ukrainian internet and phone system to begin with sort of thing? You're like, why? I asked myself that, but you realize that they want to keep spying. There is a particular outfit in Crimea that is set up for running spying, the telecommunication spying in, in Ukraine. And they want the internet and the telco lines, because otherwise they wouldn't be able to spy on them. Uh, number two, it turns out that the Russians themselves have been using Ukrainian telco infrastructure for communications because their own radios suck. Uh, so now on the GPS front, it's probably similar things. A, we've become better at defending this stuff and B, and so maybe that was more resilient than we think. They tried on the even on, on the eve on the invasion. They were trying to go at the Viasat systems and so on. So it's not for lack of trying on that. And then B, who knows? Maybe these Russians need, you know, Western GPS systems that they actually realize that they need it. So I I don't have a good answer on that particular one. But it's the you're right onto it. Second and third order effects may surprise us here. We're more entangled than um yes. than we think.
0: Interesting. Okay. When you first kind of started a recorded future, a lot of it was focused on like some of these open source, freely available content that's out there in the intelligence community called OSINT. But it does seem like OSINT is very much the backwater that's out there. Even at the CIA, I believe the the OSINT folks are, they're not even in the main building. They're in like this like random office park that's many, many miles away, essentially in their version of Siberia. (laughs) The intelligence community seems to uh, really discount a lot of OSINT stuff. Is that changing or is that endemic or how do you see that?
1: It's interesting. I remember having coffee with George Tenet like in 2002 or something like that when I just got the first contract for Spotfire. Two thousand two or three or something like that, and he made that point that he himself had, you know, instituted the open source center that you're referring to. Probably moved since back when I was there then at that time. But and he made that point that the nature of secrecy and spying is that the more secret it is, the more value it has, and yeah. and that certainly has been the case. We have a great board member at Recorded Future, Sir Alex Younger, who ran MI six up until recently. He makes that exactly that point, but he in his mind. Bellingcat changed all this than, you know, by yeah. how these Bellingcat guys have been able to go and dig up
0: insanely detailed stuff on Russian dudes of all sorts. And the, the budget for Bellingcat is so small, right? I mean, it's just it's, it's a, a bunch of smart folks.
1: Yeah. So, so the point that we're now trying to make is that, look, in the future, it's a little bit complicated here. But in reality, all information collection operations, spying, call it that, is sort of does start with some sort of open source starting game, whether that's down to like Washington Post, <laughs> you know, like you, yeah. you start in what you know, and that base should be there in a consistent way across agencies It should be in, across the government and so on. And that's actually in many ways how we try to position record future is that sort of Foundational intelligence. That said, I think there is also there is another aspect to this. So you you find a lot of people in the U.S. government who do things, or in, in frankly in any government, who they take a bunch of Yemeni newspapers in the morning, they read them, they summarize them, and then stamp top secret, special yeah. compartmentalized, all these fancy words on it, and suddenly it becomes completely unshareable. But it's very special, and it's, it becomes very hard to share with your partners, your colleagues, even down the hall. And we think that that world needs to change where it's sort of like there is this common base.
0: Well, and there is this thing like there's so many things I assume this is true in, in many countries, but certainly in the U.S. There's certainly things that are, quote unquote, top secret that everybody knows. So if the average citizen knows this, in my opinion, it shouldn't be labeled as top secret. We should be able to have a discussion. It's like, is the U.S. interested in learning about Iran? Of course. Right. This shouldn't be top secret that they're trying to learn about what's going on in Iran. Like that is an obvious thing. Everyone knows that or you care about like the topography. Of Ukraine or something, of course that would be the thing. Yeah. But these things are actually considered top secrets. You you need a clearance often yeah. to yep. have this conversation, which often to me you should have a clearance to talk about real secrets, mm-hmm. but not about things that like everybody knows.
1: No, no, and it ends up being there's job security stuff that goes into this because having the clearance. But da-da-da-da. so yep. there, like, we could talk for hours about that there. But now at the same time, there are real secrets and real secrets whether. Nuclear secrets, or, or oh yeah, you know, real knowing, secrets.
0: Great, have yeah. have you it. Know, yeah. Or yeah.
1: having the access to the butler of Putin. Yes. If somebody does have access to the Putin's butler, better fucking shut up about it. Right, so, right, right. So you know there are for sure many real secrets. But it's especially in the U.S. This is not as bad in other countries. Maybe in China, I don't know that. But the U.S. has such a sprawling apparatus, and for a lot of those it's like it's a lot of this is job security i know okay yeah the job
0: day. the clearance stuff does seem like it's like a job security act yeah or something yeah. like that for folks out yeah. there it's like i can't sell you a piece of software because i'm not cleared you don't, often don't need to know why the software yeah. what, the, what the ultimate thing on the software but you know you need a fast database right yeah yeah
1: But this stuff has become so entangled over probably 100 years so that it's very hard to detangle. This is like to then be able to cut out and say, actually, we're going to declassify this whole thing here. To Talk about second and third order effects here. So I have a lot of appreciation for that. It's not easy. And there's actually a lot of good intent among senior people in this. But even with the best of intent, it is very hard to change this.
0: So what do you think of these like experts? So you mentioned like someone's reading the the Yemeni thing, and they probably visited Yemen many times. They probably speak the language and stuff. But when you think of all these prediction markets, that have existed, this Philip Tetlock stuff, yeah, yeah. that usually the amateur person who is a dentist in Ohio often can beat the Yemeni expert who's been on the ground many times, who reads the language, who has access to top secret information. Mm-hmm. Why is that person, you would just think that person just has a massive advantage, yet they often lose on all of these different prediction things. Why do they lose so much?
1: it's interesting. I think it's more about what sort of question you're thinking about. Early days of Recorded Future, before we got into cyber, we thought a lot about this and we actually wanted to sort of, that was sort of the nature of the name Recorded Future. We want to be able to collect all the tidbits about where Xi Jinping would be, or at that time, I don't know, Wu Jintao, where he would be at the time, the Chinese president. And we would then be able to say, by aggregating everything the internet knew, Philip blog style, to say that he's going to be here at this time. Turns out a lot of the questions that the U.S. president asks, or like if you think about the U.S. intelligence community sort of rolling into that presidential daily brief, it's sort of interesting about whether he's going to be there at that particular time, and some of those questions exist. You know, when will Iran have a nuclear weapon, or will they have a nuclear? Those sort of. Yeah. But most of the questions are not necessarily of that sort of nature.
0: But a lot of it is—it's uh, there's some sort of skirmish, civil warish, uh, you know, in a country. And we want to know, okay, will the president of the country still be present a year from now, right? And you, you've got to put some sort of percentage bet on it yeah, or inflation bet or some sort of thing like that. With COVID, there were so many bets that we had to place on it. <laughs> and it just turns out that often these these amateur players who are smart often beat the experts.
1: Yeah. I think there is a lot of clever thoughts going on about people who want to find ways to take advantage of this it is difficult for a government apparatus to take advantage of that. And it's, you know, because many times it might actually be the question that is as much as the issue as is the answer. Yeah. So you, you know, like how do the fact that I'm interested in potato prices in Iran, potatoes or tomatoes, maybe it's yeah. tomatoes in Iran, that is sort of the usual, basically the proxy for how angry the average Iranian is. So if I have a great sort of thermometer of the price of potatoes and and tomatoes in Tehran, I have a good proxy for the level of irritation in Iran. And maybe I could use that as a way to, but by now, so it might not be so much about whether these markets exist or not, because the problem is I don't really want to tell the world what questions I'm asking. And and so, so that's the other sort of issue that you run into here.
0: Yes. Okay. Well, that could be true too. Yeah. Good point. So there are questions that are too, too sensitive to ask, but there are also questions that we all can know And in those cases, it seems to me that one of the reasons that the experts don't do as well as they should, given that they have deep knowledge and proprietary information that nobody else has, is that they seem less likely to update their priors. Yeah. Whereas just the dentist in Ohio, they're not coming like their identity isn't around a certain thing happening. Yeah, yeah. They're just trying to get to the truth. And so they're much willing to like change their mind as the information changes.
1: No, I think you're right. Look, if you're the guy who's covered Northern Waziristan for 20 years, you do the weekly, you do the monthly, you do the yeah. quarterly on Northern Waziristan. Why would you even change it? Like maybe... Why would you come forward and say Northern Beziristan doesn't really matter anymore? <laughs> that's not a good... Uh, but now I will also say that one of the coolest things we've done is that we're in 30 national cyber centers around the world as the underlying common intelligence platform. And that's, you know, coming from, you know, where, where these countries have come forward and say, look, we're going to work with this third party platform. So it's a sign that the world is changing that people are more willing to look on the outside and so on. And I think that the world is coming around. It's hard to change. And and we've slowly, the world is coming around.
0: No, selling the government, especially to the intelligence community is really tricky. Like what advice would you give to other CEOs listening to this podcast if they want to enter, let's say the IC market? patients
1: <laughs> sort of i started this we ran into some guys from i guess i could say that nsa 20 years ago who when we were doing spotfire they brought us in we did some cool stuff then we had a phone call from incutel with this is also sort of a 20 year ago when they were like look we have all this data we want to visualize it, it was yeah. actually before palantir sort of thing like all that and you know that and then we probably in total have done 15 transactions within Qtel. I think that's sort of no secret. So. I've personally invested an enormous amount of time in that over the last two decades. And I think we've done good work. And sometimes that's led to things that have shown up on front pages of newspapers. Sometimes it's just sad, (laughs) years and years of nothing happening. And you just got to sort of be willing. And it's also a tricky world because you know that, you know, that one of the best marketing things in the world is being able to have your customers talk about what you do. Yeah. Guy, these guys ain't talking much to the world about what you're doing. So, so I, I'd be careful. I'd be patient. I'd be careful in really knowing. Well, many of us
0: don't want to wait 20 years to have some yeah, huge contract or something, right? It's
1: a, I don't want to be too discouraging, but it's not fast money. How about that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, last year, in 2021, you had said that Record a Future company was planning going public, let's say, in the next 18 months. My guess is that the market changes in 2022 may have changed your calculation. How do you think about that from the long-term health of the company? That's a
1: good question. I, I think it doesn't you know, even matter. Or... Yeah. If it, first of all, I don't think it really matters too yeah. much. Now, it matters internally when you talk to people and so on. And I think, you know, we, we started, I had the idea for Recorded Future in 2007. We started a company in 08, 09. You know, so we've been doing this for a good while, maybe all in since 2010. And so we want to make sure that we have great shareholders for a long time. As I mentioned, InqTel was been an investor for about 20 years, Accomplice, one of which used to be Atlas Venture, has been an investor in my stuff since 1996, 97. Whoa. It's like a okay. like quarter of a century. <laughs> so I love longevity. You know, like people who yeah. just want to be in it for a long time. Insight called us in 2013, I think, first time, and just pinged us, took us until 17 before they invested, and then yeah, they beat our great firm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you know, like when you deal with people like that, where it's not about quick money, it's about building for the long term. That's what I think about. How do I set this up so that this stuff can be around? And we want to be build this to be a peer of nations, peer of sort of like we want to be sort of a peer of the other countries in the West. And to do that, we've got to have incredible shareholders who want to build for long term. So an IPO could absolutely be part of that, but it's not sort of first order. It's the key is to figure out how we have a very good shareholder base. And to your point going public at this moment in time, even if we could, probably wouldn't be the best way to get the best shareholder base, would it?
0: How do you think about navigating political things? Obviously, that could be like changing winds in politics, or there may even be something like your employees super care about, but you want to stay out of or something. like. How do you navigate that as a CEO?
1: Yeah, I know. And that's obviously become harder because, you know, the expectation of employees in our companies, you're feeling the same is that they want you to take stances. And, and yep. so we try to be careful, for sure. I'm sort of at one level, pretty capitalist, where I think companies should stay away from politics. We took a very hard stance on Ukraine. And that was sort of logical in the sense that, hey, I and many others felt very strongly about it, but B, it sort of made sense given what we do. It's sort of obviously highly related. The yeah. cynic would say that it's marketing, but no, it's not. It's like we've taken, you know, just like a very deep stance on that. We, you know, again, try to be long-term and align ourselves with stuff that matters. We believe in democracy. We do believe in the West. We believe in trying to help out building a free world, a better world, like uh, those sort of long-term things that, you know, they're not going to be super easy to navigate every moment. But as long as you have a good sort of, I don't know, shining star or whatever it is you're navigating towards, you can hopefully. Do how do you
0: know? Because there is a it's hard to know where to end than like the borders of Israel or reproductive rights in America or you yeah. just go through all these all things, things like well, you could say, they could say all these things have something to do with democracy. And and so how do you know where to draw the line and where to take a stand and where not to? No,
1: it's a, you know, we do like in our database, all of Crimea is for sure still Ukraine,
0: huh. Yeah. Right. So you're so, making, you know, you're making that, that, a political that, statement. Yeah. How do you deal with Taiwan or some of these other types of things, or how do you think about these? Taiwan is for sure its own country in recorded future. Okay. Got it. Okay. So you, but we also do
1: take pretty careful. We have never sold in Russia. We used to have one or two customers in China a very long time ago, but we've gotten ourselves out of that. Uh, and have not gained any new customers there in five or six years sort of thing. So we've like, gotten no, And so that's all cleared up. Like there's whole sets of countries that we stay away from the Ministry of Interiors from because we just worry about what they're up to. We have an audit list of companies we would never sell to the NSO group in Israel. We've had companies show up and say, here's hard cash. We want to be a customer. And we're like, sorry, it's not going to happen. Yeah. So we just said new to a renewal here recently that's hard you know the subscription is yeah, away from a renewal because we didn't like what we were seeing so we try to be um, pretty good about this stuff and, and then have to be incredibly humble because you know like sitting on high moral horses is easy in theory but then sure. in practice it's not so 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 you have to be extremely humble i think is the other element of that
0: I know you thought a lot about disinformation and it maybe started out as like kind of simple propaganda. And now we've got like bot networks, we've got algorithmic gaming, we've got deep fakes. How do you think just the general world of disinformation is going to be changing over time? Yeah,
1: that's the, you know, malware is pretty binary. It's nice and hard, isn't it? And dealing with intelligence around people blowing stuff up and so on, it's also fairly straightforward. Disinformation is extremely hard. Yes, very hard. Yeah, you know, Fox News versus ABC, and you could argue all day which one is disinformation. So when humans can't make up their mind about what is the not, I doubt a computer is going to do it. Yeah, (laughs) that's sort of the. So we write about disinformation. You know, most of our stuff is computer run sort of thing, but we write about disinformation. We have some basic sort of product functionality around disinformation, but it's not very automated yet. And I'm sort of doubtful that over the next five years, somebody will come up with the algorithm that says that this is disinformation or not. You can do simple things where you sort of go back to count versus AI. You can say, this source has never been shown up before. This is a new source. This source appeared yesterday. Yeah. Probably a good sign that I shouldn't trust it too much. Yeah. There are those sort of things. But this magic, this is this information versus this is not, especially when you cross company or country borders, I think that's just like incredibly hard.
0: Mark Penn, he's a celebrated pollster and he's a guest on A World of Das. He has a theory that smart people are way more susceptible to disinformation than the average person. How do you see that? That's probably true.
1: I haven't thought about it that way, but I love it. I think people who are over intellectual sort of like think that like I live in Cambridge, sort of. you in Boston. <laughs> you know, a lot of intellectual people who think they know, and they all you know read the Atlantic and think extremely alike, sort of thing. You know, the, right?
0: It's it's the people who don't think advertising affects them is the one who are most affected by yeah, advertising, yeah. right? So yeah,
1: I, I haven't thought much too much about that point, but I love it. That's probably extremely true.
0: Yeah, that's good. All right. A couple of personal questions that you've said you've read the book Bloomberg by Bloomberg at least five times. And I love that book, but I've only read it once. What are some of the insights from that book that you found so useful?
1: So I think it's sort of this, first of all, there, and you must, you know, you read a lot too. And, you know, there is this thing when you pick up a book and you feel like, dude, this guy wrote a book for me. And here you have this, <laughs> you know, this, this quote there. And when he describes what they're trying to do by pulling together a bunch of data. Analytics.
0: Yeah, in some ways, record a future is very similar in some ways, right? So so that that.
1: was just like remarkable. I also think his perceptions around how to sell, how to build product are incredibly good and useful. And maybe they're not deep insightful things by now, but it's still extremely good reminders. He's very much like about how you build a business, how you think long term, how you think about shareholders and no. So I just love it. And and then there are about 10 little tidbits about the, for example, inner, the connecting news to stock market prices with like this idea of different modalities of information connecting them. There's a lot of these sort of analytical tidbits in it. For us, we started our media arm and that chapter four of that book is like, (laughs) we followed every word in the book.
0: It's like, I'm rereading it yet again, just because of that. No, it's remarkable. One of the things that I find really interesting that they were able to do is, first of all, they're able to have like core price transparency, where everybody pays the same price, mm-hmm. which is extremely rare for companies that sell into the enterprise. In many cases, when you're selling to the enterprise, you can have very, very high variance of price. Yeah, yeah. And then Dan Dockteroff, who used to be the CEO of Bloomberg, was on World of Das. And mm-hmm. he has this great anecdote where, and not only that, but they raise the price every two years by the rate of inflation which is in some ways much lower, much a smaller rate than most companies raise their prices by the rate of inflation. And then he said that, that even in like 2008, 2009, during that crisis, that was just happened to be when they're supposed to raise the price and they they still went through with it by, because that's the deal that they've made with everybody. It, yeah, I, I just yeah, find I mean, that fascinating.
1: Yeah, I know. Yeah, no, it's so good, so good.
0: Now you grew up in Sweden, you served uh, in the Swedish army rangers, which is kind of some ways mandatory Mm -hmm. military service, Mm -hmm. right? In Sweden. How do you think that shaped your trajectory and uh, think about when you're thinking about like geopolitical threat intelligence, et cetera?
1: So and that was a fantastic experience. I loved it. Right, you know, two days after high school or a day and a half after high yeah. school, you're sort of somebody shaves your head and you're on on with a big backpack. And I think that was the point. It was less about geopolitics, even though there was a Russia, polit- you know, sort yeah. of geopolitical backdrop. But there's
0: like camaraderie. And, yeah, and no, like, it's yeah. more
1: about never give up, work hard, just like strive forward, even under not having eaten for four and a half days, <laughs> just keep moving, that sort of stuff. Not much thinking going on, not to sort of be harsh on them. But, you know, like I ended up going getting my PhD after that. There were not too many other PhDs out of the Ranger program, if you put it that way. <laughs> so but fantastic guys that I still love. So it was, it was now, a great experience.
0: Now you've been in the U.S. for 25 years or so. And I, I'm always interested in this like immigrant story of like mm-hmm. how the U.S. can attract these incredibly talented people from around the world. Like what made you want to build your career here? So
1: I got interested in um, user interface design and data visualization early on, very early ni- in the early 90s. and. In Sweden, there was like nobody who did that. I was in a computer science program there. So I emailed this guy, Ben Schneiderman at the University of Maryland. This was probably at the time when people got 10 emails a day instead of 2000. And we back and forth a little bit. And I said, Can I come and be at your lab for the summer? And he's like, Sure. You know, like, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I just did it. And so I did two summers there, wrote two papers or three papers in two summers that really, especially one of those papers has become, it's still being referenced. So it was great. And he just challenged me, like he went from sort of education to just be like, can you do this? And I'm like, yeah, I can do this. Just like. That is sort of America, you know, just loved it. And then eventually by 96, 97, the guy from Atlas Venture at the time, who said you can, with well, they invested in the company and they bis, bil, invested in other sort of BI, business intelligence type companies. And this one guy said, you can be anywhere you want when we invest as long as it's Boston. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> so we moved. And the idea was to you know, a classic move for a year, hire a head of sales and move
0: back and 25 years later, still,
1: still here, so.
0: What if a, I recently read this book, The Making of the Atom Bomb, which is just an amazing book by Richard Rhodes. And one of the things that I kind of always knew, but really struck me is how the United States really became this beacon for talent. Yeah. And most of that talent was in the Germanic world that came mm-hmm. over. Mm-hmm. And you would think, obviously, much of it was Jewish. So it's maybe difficult for the Nazis <laughs> to attract that talent. But most of that talent came over from the Germanic world or even from Sweden, obviously, mm-hmm. or from from Denmark or a lot of other places. But it was coming from like Eastern, Central Europe. Yeah. And we were able to attract it here. And it still seems today that the US is that beacon where people from all over, all these like incredibly smart people, whether it be India or China or Africa or and, wherever and it is. Hold, we
1: don't lose it because we, man, we got to hold on to that. You know, like this, I think you're right. This is the deep brand of the U S and our universities, other people can create whatever universities they want, but the universities are sort of at the core of that. And we just got to make sure we don't suddenly come up with some immigration laws or something that gets in the way of this, because this is powerful to your point.
0: Yeah. And if you think of even like post world war II, where there were these like incredible scientists that were in Germany. There was this race between the U.S. and I think it was called Operation Paperclip. There was a race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union to like scoop up these scientists yeah, and yeah. like get as many of them over to your side as possible. Yeah, And it would seem today there should be this like race to get all these great AI researchers and other smart people and get them into your country. But we, and unfortunately
1: we make some of it hard now. It's like, and and this is where you have to be careful, you know, because it's easy to say we want the PhDs, but no, to be honest, it's not really that what it matters. It's other sort of things that matters, but but no, we should be scooping them up uh, by the, by the, not dozen, by the, whatever the big number is. So.
0: All right. Last question. We ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice?
1: Yeah, I think this sort of like people say you should not put all your eggs in one basket sort of thing. And I'm all in just all in just be like all in. That's sort of probably, and I don't know how, it's probably not that contrarian, but it's certainly contrarian to a lot of other people. Well, no,
0: what it is, it, especially, I mean, going back to the smart people thing, it does seem like smart people tend to super value optionality. And they want to make sure that they always have their options open. They always have an exit right. strategy. Yeah, right. um, and that could, in some cases, be good advice, but also could maybe. a good to, question. You know, I, just good doing one. like I okay things, that's... but not great things. Right? No, no.
1: And I think then about the, talking about books, one of the few marketing books that I ever liked was that Crossing the Chasm book. And I think it's like in chapter three, he talks about how hard it is for a entrepreneur to pick a vertical because, you know, many of these, like a computer scientist or math, yeah. doctor, he's like, I can do plus and minus and even numbers. And you know, like, and then along comes the idea that I should just apply my technology to this narrow use case. And that's the best way of doing it. And to your point, smart people want lots of optionality. It usually means make no choices. and means that you actually take all the risk instead
0: of just taking a little bit of the risk. so. All right. This is great. Christopher Allberg. I, I follow you at C. Allberg on Twitter. Is that the best place for everyone to find you? Absolutely. Right place. All right. This is amazing. Thank you so much for being a guest on World of Das. Thank you. This was so much fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at Auren, at that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.